developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, fresh off of cooking a fantastic-looking Thanksgiving dinner, is Ethan Sachs. What's up, buddy? Uh, not too much, yeah. Recovered from... Turkey Day. It was a smashing success. Uh, my friend left yesterday afternoon, and now we're just uh, enjoying the long weekend. How about you? Yeah, same. I just got done having Thanksgiving with my family. I've been drafting up a storm this week. We did Thanksgiving on Friday, so I had a little streamsgiving action Ooh. on actual Thanksgiving Day. I did a double header, took a little break in there to have some dinner and things like that. But yeah, it's been a good time. Played a lot of magic, and I've very much enjoyed having a week off of school. Have you dipped into Modern Horizons this week? That's the like flavor of the week offering on Magic Online. I did once because I had five tokens or whatever that got me into a, a oh, free yeah. draft. Yeah, yeah. And so I did my free draft and got out, went back to the safety of Eldraine. Yeah, I did one Modern Horizons draft last night too. Uh, White was wide open and then I easily trophied and then I was like, I'm going to go back to my homeland of Eldraine. Yeah, sounds good. So let's check in on that trophy leaderboard since you've been crushing it this week. Yeah, and I have 64 drafts under my belt, which is starting to be a respectable number. Uh, 132 and 58 overall record, 17 trophies and still hanging at a 69% win rate. Yeah, I only got to do nine drafts this week with all the festivities that I was planning for. So 174 drafts, 347 to 162, 53 trophies and cruising at that 68% win rate. Very cool. All right. So today we are going to be doing our Lords of Limited patented What's the Play episode. So for folks who are new to the show, we try and build one of these into the rotation every set where we're going to actually dive into some in-game board states. And these are tough to do in an audio platform and a podcast uh, style show. So we're going to be asking you to play along at home. We're going to have a bunch of imager links where you download the show to follow along. So, you know, we're going to do our best to describe the board states, but it may get a little complicated. If you're driving, if you're mowing the lawn, whatever you're doing when you listen to the podcast, then it's maybe more difficult to follow along with, but we're going to do our best. We really like to build these in because, you know, it's very, very easy to talk a lot about pick orders and drafting. But I think also this is where I feel like I can gain the most improvement when I get to talk to you about these in-game decisions because I think you and I bring 
different perspectives. You know, you were talking to me about this on stream the other day. You were like, I think you're very good at like analyzing a board state. And I do think you have a really good way of like figuring out what the like flow of the game is going to be. I think it's very easy for you to think like multiple turns ahead, that sort of thing. Yeah, I do feel like that's one of my strengths as a magic player for sure. Yeah. So we're going to hopefully get to, you know, bring the yin and the yang here and look at these uh, multiple different what's the play decisions in game and uh, have some great discussions. But before we get into any of that, we got to talk about a few housekeeping things. First things first, the Lords of Limited Patreon, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show. If you so choose, it is the season of giving if you are so inclined and in the mood. And we're going to give things right back to you. If you're going to give back to the show, you'll get access to the Lords of Limited Discord, access to our show notes, access to spreadsheets with all hundreds of our draft logs and deck picks. See what works, see what doesn't, get access to a sort of private tier of the Discord. And for folks who are really interested in giving back, you can get access to monthly coaching sessions with us. All of that information is available on our Patreon page. And each and every week, we want to welcome our new patrons to the fold. And this week, we're going to be welcoming David, Lewis, and Jay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah. Cannot say thank you enough. Love the Discord. Love chiming in on what's the picks. You know, and I think the other, I was thinking about this the other day. I think you get out of the Discord what you put into it. Like there's somebody named Wumple Stiltskin that I just like sticks in my brain because they're always using draft with me and they're tagging me to like draft along with them. And it's awesome. I love following along with their stuff. I love answering their questions. And I think watching their improvement and watching them learn picks and what like I think I can have seen their improvement happening like via the discord which is just super cool that kind of hunger for getting better and like constantly wanting to like pick people's brains is infectious like that excites me when I see that in the discord Agreed. Lords of the Limited is now also partnered with Coalesce Apparel and Design, Magic's newest apparel company. And as part of that, we've got a gift code for you to get 10% off your order over there, which pertains to any apparel on their website, not just Lords of the Limited merchandise. That code is LOL, all caps. But obviously, you're going to be heading on over there to get some Lords of the Limited swag for the people that are closest to you in your life. Christmas is coming up. Nothing makes a better gift than a hashtag I'm with Ben shirt. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. I have been uh, thinking about gifting those around for the holiday season. All right, Ben, let's dive right in. We've got a lot of these what's the plays to look at, and I think we're going to skip right over doing any roundtables and just dive right into your first what's the play decision. All right, so we've got a white-red aggro deck here featuring the required number of Ardenvale Tacticians to trophy. Magic number seems to be three, according (laughs) to the Lords of Limited Discord. (laughs) Uh, We've also got an Opportunistic Dragon as a rare, Archon of Absolution. Those are the best cards that stand out. Got a good suite of two drops, some removal. We've got a Scorching Dragonfire. So I think picture a typical white-red aggro deck. Also a giant killer hanging out in the one-drop slot. So we're in game two, and you're down a game after you've mulled to four in game one, and you still managed to make a game of it after mulling to four. You're on the play game two against a blue-green splashing red deck that's a lot slower and a lot bigger than you. And your hand is this. You've got mountain, mount. Oh, I guess I should tell you the mana base before we get into the hand. So your mana base is seven total mountains, 10 total planes. You're heavier slanted towards planes because of the triple Ardenvale tactician. And you've got one golden egg. I think that's important too. Absolutely. So your hand is mountain, mountain, opportunistic dragon, scalding cauldron, giant killer, worthy knight, and prized griffin. So three white cards, no planes, four drop red card, and opportunistic dragon and Scalding Cauldron. Yeah, I mean, this is tough. So there are some odds things that I'd like to know. Basically, there are two things I'm thinking about when I look at this hand. One is what are my outs to draw something to be able to like play the things on time? So, you know, if you draw planes, this hand opens up 
drastically for you. You get to cast Worthy Knight, you get to cast Giant Killer, that third land unlocks the activation on Scalding Cauldron. But if you don't draw that land, and basically if you don't draw that on time or like in two draws, you're probably just going to auto lose, right? Yeah, it's not going to go well for you. You've got a few other things that you could draw, like you have a Seven Dwarves and a Rimrock Knight. And I think people don't factor these in when they're thinking about these decisions, like they're only thinking about the lands they can draw. But you can also draw spells that you can play like those two or Scorching Dragonfire or a Golden Egg. So those are all things that you could draw that you would be able to play. Now they don't, they're sort of like, you know, stop gaps in that you really are going to need to draw planes if you're going to expect to win a game of magic with this hand. Um, so did you end up doing any odds calculations for this particular draw? I did two odds calculations. One was looking at the odds of drawing a planes in two draw steps, which would mean missing a planes on turn two, but hitting a planes on turn three. And the odds of that happening were only 52%. So not great. Yeah. And then the other one that really sealed the deal for me was I took the time to figure out how often I was going to cast Opportunistic Dragon on turn four. And so that is like 15 lands remaining in the deck and you have three draws to find two of them. And the odds for that are only 43%. Yeah, that's not great. So like you're basically looking at 50% of the time, you're just going to lose with this hand probably. Well, and even if you get Worthy Knight down, you don't have other knights to trigger it. And then Prize Griffin's going to be even later than Opportunistic Dragon. Basically, I don't think this hand is capable of curving out and putting pressure on our opponent, despite having like two of our best rares, three rares in the hand. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think this is the hand that we need to be able to pressure our opponent that's going slower and bigger than us. But it just feels it's so tempting to keep a hand like this after mulling to four in game one. Yeah. I just almost said, screw it. I'm going to keep it. And then I said, no, like I need to do the odds thing. So just make sure you take the time to not tilt, find out your odds and make informed decisions based on your odds when you're talking about keeper moles. One final point to throw in here is that giant killer is worse in this hand where you're going to be choked on mana and then choked on white mana as well. Like it's basically just a one mana one, two. Yep, absolutely. All right, sweet. So moving on to my first one here. Uh, what we've got going on is a pretty sweet blue-white artifacts matter deck uh, featuring double Arcanist's Owl, Emery Lurker of the Lock, our favorite, and a Stone Coil Serpent as the hits, um, but just a lot of support, double Flutterfox, Glass Casket, just a lot, lot, a lot, a lot of artifacts here. So looking at our first in-game decision, you're facing down a red-white opponent, and what you're looking at here is a scry off of a Witching Well. So the life totals here are you're at 14, your opponent's at 8. Your board, in terms of creatures, is just an animating fairy. Their board is a Raging Redcap and a Fireborn Knight that they just cast. And unfortunately, your Emery is uh, exiled under a glass casket on your opponent's side. You have uh, six lands in play. You've just tapped one to cast Witching Well. And you're looking at the following cards as options to top or bottom. You have a Moonlit Scavengers and a Mysterious Pathlighter. Yeah, so when I'm looking at this board state, we are behind on board pretty significantly right yes our our animating fairy does not block well against fireborn knight and it was you know we'll trade with raging red cap plus you know you got to presume red white has combat tricks to push damage through mm -hmm. so i think basically we are defenseless and mysterious Pathlighter does not help add to our defenses in a meaningful way despite being a powerful card so i think i'm bottoming Pathlighter here mm -hmm. and then moonlit scavengers is a four or five does effectively blank our opponent's fireborn knight unless they want to pump four mana into it which is great and we'll 
definitely block the Raging Red Cap. And if we want to leave the Witching Well around, we'll bounce a creature. So I think Moonlit Scavengers, we definitely want regardless here. Um, so bottoming Pathlighter and topping Moonlit Scavengers. Yeah. And then the question is, and I remember we were discussing this because you were Skyping in uh, during this game, was do you crack Witching Well now or do you leave it around so that you guarantee to bounce something with Moonlit Scavengers? Now, I think it's important to note that you know, we have the opportunity for bottoming Pathlighter and drawing off well and then drawing for turn that we have the opportunity to draw a number of, you know, one or two mana plays uh, that we could get that will like, you know, also trigger the scavengers because we'll have enough mana. And I think it's important to note that uh, some of the artifacts are in the graveyard, like Cauldron or Egg. We have a, a few redraws into an artifact to trigger the scavengers that we could cast that turn uh, in Sorcerer's Broom and uh, Glass Casket. Right. So I think ultimately my feeling is, what did we say here? Well, you wanted to not crack well and I wanted to crack well. Okay, good, because I still don't want to crack well. (laughs) (laughs) I was like reading the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, I think the tempo balance from the Moonlit Scavengers is way more important than any card we're going to find here. I think there is the like some percent that you're going to draw something that not only could trigger the scavengers, but like we could draw into land and Flutterfox and then want to play both of those. You know, I think just lighting the mana on fire this turn feels so bad to me. It does, but it's for a definite gain next turn. Yeah, I, I just I don't I don't think it's right. And then we still get the two cards from the Witching Wall later. Like priority number one is stabilizing. We don't need to use our mana. And the best way to stabilize is to make sure we bounce something with Moonlit Scavengers. But isn't a 4-5 just going to be a good blocker anyway? It is. Yeah. But a 4-5 bouncer thing is even better. We got to eat. So in exchange for not spending five of our mana this turn, we make sure our opponent doesn't get to spend four of their mana down the road. Yeah, that's true. I, I just I just think it feels so bad. Like what? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't agree with that. I think lighting the man on fire is just, I don't know when we're cracking Witching Well. I guess you just, you just don't care about cracking Witching Well this turn or this game. Well, we would do it after the turn after we play Moonlit Scavengers. But in theory, yeah, I guess you're just like cracking it then. Yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe that's bad. I, I it, just seems so like against every fiber of my being to be like, I have the mana to spend on this thing and I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I hear that. I don't think spending the mana this turn is doing anything to further us winning the game at all. I think it's active and I think it's actively harming our next turn. Yeah. If we don't draw into something. I think this is super close. I think it's very interesting. And I think it's interesting. (laughs) I think it's interesting that you and I wanted to do different things. I'm remembering this now. Yeah. And then like coming back and looking at this that I still want to do the thing I wanted to do, like looking at this fresh. Yeah, I'm curious what uh, what listeners think. So let us know about this decision, uh, if you would have cracked the Witching Well or not. So I ended up doing so. And then uh, draws off of the Witching Well were a turn into a pumpkin and then a glass casket. So then what I did on my turn, I had seven mana, scavengers, casket, and turn into a pumpkin in my hand. So what I ended up doing was going, okay, I'm going to cast turn into a pumpkin main phase and hope that I draw into another land so that I can then casket something else and crack the food token to buffer my life total. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. We drew into a fairy guide mother. So now the board looks like this. We've got scavengers, casket, and fairy guide mother in our hand. We've got three mana available, two planes and an island, a food token in play, and our opponent's board now has an inspiring veteran and a raging red cap, and we bounce that fireborn knight back to their hand with the turn into a pumpkin. 
Your opponent's at six, and we're at four. What to do with this three mana here, Ben? And how are we trying to set up these future turns? Yeah, I remember you and I talked about this for like five minutes on stream. This is a really complicated one here because we're so close to having our opponent dead in the air that it's so tempting to want to attack with Animating Fairy and just play a blocker, block the Raging Red Cap. But we just don't quite get there. The problem is that we just lose to pump. So if we parse this board state down, your opponent's got two attackers, one of which is lethal currently. Mm -hmm. And you got to assume the opponent could have pump for the other one in red-white. So it's tempting to play Glass Casket on the Raging Red Cap and then just let your opponent attack in with the Inspiring Veteran down to two. And then the next turn, you can Fairy Guide Mother on your Animating Fairy and push Lethal through because they're at six. So if you hit them for two this turn and then you hit them with the four flyer in the air next turn, you get Exaxes. But the problem is that opens you up to being dead to a number of things from your opponent. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately what we decided on the safest line here was, and this was a suggestion from Beers in chat, Beers SC, so shout out to them, was to glass casket the Raging Red Cap so that you don't lose to barge in shenanigans or anything like that. And then you leave Animating Fairy back as a blocker, planning to trade with the Inspiring Veteran. So you've got max defense set up. And the following turn, you get a Moonlight Scavengers bouncing something. And then the next turn, you can Fairy Guide Mother onto your Moonlit Scavengers to push six damage in the air, which I think is by far the safest way to go for lethal in the air a turn or two down the road, which is what we're looking at having to do anyway. Yeah, uh, so didn't see that line. I think that's definitely the thing to do. And I do think important note here is that you should casket. I think it's tempting to casket Inspiring Veteran here because it's like, oh, well, my opponent's a red-white knight deck. If I remove the Veteran, then the Raging Red Cap is just two damage, the same as the Veteran. But I think Bargin really tips the scales of going, look, Glass Casket on the Red Cap means you don't lose to Bargin, whereas if you put it on Veteran, you would lose to that card. Yep. Absolutely. So we did manage to set that up and Moonlit Scavengers with Gift of the Fae was lethal in two turns. All right, let's hop back over to one of mine. So we're rocking a blue-green deck here. That's kind of a typical blue-green deck. Blue-green's been my flavor of the week the past couple of weeks. I really like these blue-green decks that sort of have a bigger late game than everything else. Oh, yeah. So key cards here, double Marleaf Pixie, which is also my new jam. Marleaf Pixie has gone way up for me in my pick order. And I take, try to take advantage of the fact that they sometimes wheel mm -hmm. on Magic Online. So double Marley Pixie, double Outmuscle, double Thunderous Snapper, a.k.a. Snappy Pappy. Love that guy. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Snappy Pappy. I just, I just imagine him as some like grumpy old snapping turtle grandpa. <laughs> okay, sure. And really just like a Garenbrig Paladin, some card draw, double Moonlit Scavengers, doesn't really matter what you've got in these decks as the top end just because your top end goes so much bigger than what most of the other decks are doing. So first decision here, we also have a scry decision in this one. I thought this was interesting that you and I both had scry decisions independent of each other. Yeah, I think Witching Well is a really interesting card. Yeah, so turn one, your hand is the following. So you've got Island, Forest, 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 Golden Egg, Marleaf, Pixie, and you're playing the Witching Well that was in your hand on turn one. So not a lot of action in your hand, but you definitely have the turn two Marleaf Pixie to be able to ramp yourself to four mana. And you scry into the following cards, Spore Cap Spider and Queen of Ice. What do you do with those two cards in that situation? I love this scry decision because I think it's very tempting to go, well, my hand is Marleaf Pixie, Golden Egg, three forests. So not much action. Here I'm looking at two spells, I should top top them. I think it's important to think about what the future turns are looking like. So next turn, you're going to play Marleaf Pixie. Then the following turn, you'll have access to four mana. So you could crack well in 
two turns. And then you'll have access to five mana on turn four. And then you'll have looked at, you know, two cards off of the Witching Well plus two more draw steps. Is Spore Cap Spider and Queen of Ice what you want to be doing when the dust settles after all of that? Because I can't imagine you drawing into anything that's going to make you want to not go Pixie on two, Crackwell on three, right? Like, uh, otherwise, you could draw into these three drops and go, well, I can then attack with Marleaf Pixie and play one of these three drops. But you're on the play. I think you know that your top end is good. You have the advantage here of being like, I can put these medium spells, these sort of curve filler spells. These are certainly two of your weaker spells in your deck in terms of creatures. Right. Queen of Ice, I think, was literally my 23rd card in the deck. So you can say, I'm going to put these two medium spells on the bottom and just hope that in the next whatever, you're going to have access to four or five cards that you'll see by the time you get to that turn we talked about, like after you crack Witching Well with Marleaf Pixie, then you'll have five mana available. I think I want to trust that my deck is going to deliver like one of my better four drops, five drops, six drops by that point and bottom both of these spells. Well, and if it's not, we're probably in trouble anyway. So bottoming both of these spells gets you closer to getting through that stuff if you're not going to hit them quickly anyway. Mm hmm. Yeah, but I so think it's we did. so tempting to be like, I want to just draw these spells because I have three lands in hand. Absolutely, yeah. So we did bottom, bottom there. Fast forward a little bit. It is now our turn three. We did play the Marley Pixie on turn two. We cast a golden golden egg this turn. And so we now our hand is now Forest Forest, Moonlit Scavengers, Moonlit Scavengers. Boom. So we found some serious top end. Uh, we have essentially four mana available to us this turn, but two of it was spent casting the golden egg. So we've got nothing to do except attack with Marleaf Pixie. Your opponent's board is forest, forest, and five cards in hand. We swing in with a Marleaf Pixie and boom, surprise, they flash in Wildborn Preserver. Oof. So now now I'm seriously thinking, oh God, this is going to be bad. They're going to block my Marleaf Pixie and I'm going to be way far away from casting these Moonlit Scavengers. They did not, which was very thankful for me. And so it's interesting to look at things from your opponent's perspective. And I think you can I think you can make a reasonable case for your opponent. You know, if they've got some good non-creatures here, maybe they're planning on pumping their Wildborn Preserver. Um, and we're definitely going to be able to cat, crack Witching Well next turn, regardless of whether or not they block Marley Pixie here. Mm -hmm. The one thing I think is a little suspect about them not blocking with Wildborn Preserver here is that they've seen Moonlit Scavengers from us. And that, I think, makes their Wildborn Preserver significantly worse. I mean, like dumping, the idea of dumping a lot of mana into that because we have ways to bounce it that they have definitely seen. I wonder if this was a case of cold feet, like they flash it in because they're flashing it in mid combat and you still have a blue mana available. So if they're not planning they're so tiny, right? Yeah. I think they're if they're not planning to block, then they wait to flash it in until end step. But the fact they're flashing it in mid combat, I feel like they were like, I'm going to block flash it in. And then we're like, oh, no, what if they have so tiny and then decided not to? Yeah, that makes sense, too. All right. So fast forward, that was not crucial. They're just trying to show the board state as it goes along. So ultimately this ended up because we scried, we then found Thunderous Snapper and then we're able to the following turn hit our fifth land drop and then the Marley Pixie still alive. We just chained a couple Moonlit Scavengers and very easily won this game because we bottom bottomed those scries. And I think if we had not bottom bottomed those scries, this would have been a very different game because it would have taken us two more turns to find all our action and would have let our opponent get their stuff set up. All right. So fast forward to game three after handily winning game two <laughs> and you're against the same opponent here. You've only seen in two games from this opponent 
The only interactive card at instant speed that you've seen is Insatiable Appetite. And since that doesn't get played a lot, I'm going to tell you what it does. It's the one in a green instant that gives plus three, plus three. And if you sack a food, gives plus five, plus five instead. That's how you lost game one. You barely, barely lost game one because they mized with an Insatiable Appetite. Mm. And so here's your board state. It's turn five. Life totals are tied at 14-14. Your opponent played an Oathsworn Knight on turn three that's been beating you down. You put a so tiny on it, so now it's only a 2-4, and your opponent just played a Curious Pair back as a blocker. So you have Marleaf Pixie on your side of the board and a Thunderous Snapper on your side of the board. So you're currently winning the board. You have five mana, you've hit all your land drops, and your hand is Island, Outmuscle, Outmuscle, Moonlit Scavengers. What is the play here? Well, I'm I'm sad to see that we're in the begin combat step because I think I would have made a play prior to this. So you've got two options. You can outmuscle something, but our opponent is representing bacon to a pie right now. Like they have three cards in hand, black, black, green, green available. Bacon to a pie would be pretty savage blowout here. Also, casting outmuscle to kill curious pair doesn't seem great to me. Um, you know, your opponent has a beanstalk giant in exile here on an adventure that can come down next turn not that outmuscle is going to help us deal with that immediately but i think that i would have because we have five mana merrily pixie i would have cast moonlit scavengers this turn and just bounced curious pair gotten my card draw trigger off the thunderous snapper and then attacked with the snapper uh into their four open mana which i, I guess you know they could bake the snapper or not um, but i think that's what i would have done Right. So I was not thinking about insatiable appetite. I was not thinking about anything. I was thinking <laughs> I'm winning on board. I'm just going to attack. Like I, I was worried about the beanstalk giant that was in exile. And I was thinking, how do I beat that? I was really tunnel visioned on how do I beat the beanstalk giant, mm-hmm. which I thought was push as much damage as possible. And then next turn, I'll use moonlit scavengers to bounce it. And if I had been thinking, and I knew I didn't want to outmuscle the curious pair because of bacon to a pie and open mana, I wasn't thinking about insatiable appetite at this point at mm-hmm. all. Um, and I was tunnel visioned on wanting a moonlit scavengers next turn if my opponent hit their land for the beanstalk giant because I thought that was going to make it pretty hard for me to win the game because that was going to be the biggest baddest thing on the battlefield. So I think though because our opponent has open mana here and we have seen the insatiable appetite, we, we should have taken the line that you described, which was moonlit scavengers, the curious bear, take our lumps, we push four damage this turn, and then maybe we can ride Marleaf Pixie to victory in the air. Maybe we find other tools off the thunderous snapper. You know, we're drawing multiple cards. We're not going to die to the beanstalk giant anytime soon. If we need to, we can outmuscle onto the Marleaf Pixie to try to pump it up to make it more of a clock. So I think ultimately. We definitely want a Moonlit Scavengers this turn, and I did not. We attacked Thunderous Snapper into the Curious Pair. Our opponent had the Insatiable Appetite, Ooh. did it into five open mana, and crushed us. Ooh, that sucks. All right, well, I think speaking of thinking about cards you've seen from your opponent, let's take a look at my next What's the Play. We've got a red-green aggro deck here. Nothing like too fancy. It's got a pretty good curve. Couple Wildwood Trackers, Ginger Brute, Rose Thorn Halberd in the one drop slot, double Sir Farron the Hengehammer in the two drop slot, and you know, some beef with uh, Witch Stalker, Rampart Smasher, Opportunistic Dragon, etc. So this is game three against a blue white opponent. Now I'm gonna describe the board state and I'll talk about what we've seen as well. So they're at 17, you're at 14. They have a Flutterfox that attacked you last turn and a crashing drawbridge that is untapped. They have five open mana, four islands and a plains, and two cards in hand. 
on your side of things, you've got a crashing drawbridge with a rose thorn halberd on it. That's a nice sexy two five there. A rampart smasher with a so tiny on it, but nowhere near seven cards in your graveyard. So you've got a three five that you can attack with. And then your hand is Garenbrig Paladin, Mountain, Sir Farron the Henchhammer, and Rimrock Knight. So you haven't made your fifth land drop for the turn, so you have the opportunity to play your mountain, and then you'll have mana to cast Garenbrig Paladin, or you know do whatever you want with that five mana. Now, the things I want to talk about here, your opponent has this five open mana. You have not seen didn't say please from them in two games. You have seen Silver Flame Squire, so the plus two, plus two, untap in on alert as the adventure and you also have seen turn into a pumpkin so with that information what do you think the play is this turn well the two most efficient ways to use your mana are either play garenberg paladin give it haste and crack in with everything Mm -hmm. or play sir farin rimrock knight onto the sir farin to give it four power play the rimrock knight give it haste and then pump with sir farin the sir farin line pushes the most damage Mm -hmm. But it's also horribly risky into five open mana here, especially knowing that your opponent has turned into a pumpkin. Yes. So if you go for that line and they have turned into a pumpkin, you get absolutely crushed because turn into a pumpkin essentially kills your Rimrock Knight because they'll do it in response to the Boulder Rush, presumably. And then you're out of Rimrock Knight, Sir Farron's back in your hand and you accomplish nothing this turn, threw away a card and your opponent cantripped off the turn into a pumpkin which is I just think it too big of a disaster knowing that you've seen that from them here. So I think I would take the safer line of playing Garenberg Paladin. If they have turned into a pumpkin, great. They delayed things by a turn. The Garenberg Paladin's back in your hand, but you still have all the tools to threaten to push this damage. And based on what's in your hand, your opponent feels significantly far behind to me here. Mm-hmm. So I don't think like trading five mana for four mana of theirs is really doing much to the board. They're just sort of delaying the inevitable. Right. So this was where I sort of didn't take into account all I had seen. Like I should have just laid into like, look, I, I've seen these two cards. I haven't seen didn't say please. I'm going to take the line that is better against the cards I've seen, which is just to play Garen Brig Paladin because as of, as you described, the blowout of going Sir Farron into Boulder Rush and then they respond with turn into a pumpkin is so huge. Like if they just bounce your Garen Brig Paladin this turn, yeah, you both are just sort of exchanging your turns for one another, like right? your five mana for their four mana. And it's not like a blowout or anything. And if they don't have it, then great. You get to attack with Garen Brig Paladin as a 5-5 and they can't even chump with crashing drawbridge and it's also better against on alert like what are they going to do they can plus two plus two untap flutterfox great that still doesn't deal with the 5-5 paladin so did you go for the sir farin line and get blown out no well so i just sort of did this like half measure thing where i like played sir i was like all right cool because i saw this amazing line i was like sir farin boulder rush rimrock knight both of them get haste what a huge attack this is going to be and so i cast sir farin and then i was like oh no <laughs> I need to th- I was like I need to think about what I've seen here. And so then I just like didn't do it. I was just like too scared. <laughs> it was bad. It was really bad. So I think you did like you need to one like make sure you're going to stick with the line that you take. And maybe I should have just like been like look I I need to not compound mistakes here and just go for it because I've already sort of gone down this path. But yeah, it was just a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. All right, next one of mine. So we're still piloting the same blue-green deck here. This blue-green deck was exciting. It played some narrow games and route <laughs> to a trophy. So this is different opponent, same blue-green deck. This is round three, game three. We're playing against a fellow blue-green player. Shout out to blue-green, double double appearance <laughs> in the finals. Shout out to blue-green. <laughs> so they have gotten off to a hot start here. With They're, they're playing sort of a blue-green mill deck. So their start was Secret Keeper, Secret Keeper into Vantress Gargoyle which was turned on as an attacker then because they had ventured deeply into my deck twice. 
So their board state is currently Secret Keeper, Secret Keeper, Spore Cap Spider. Shields are up over there, and they have a Vantress Gargoyle that we have put a so tiny on to try to put the clock down just a little bit, but nowhere near shrinking it all the way. They only have a Fell the Pheasant in their graveyard. Our board is three islands, forest, golden egg, and a thunderous snapper. And our hand is chock full of expensive cards, and we have missed our fifth land drop here. So we currently have Arcanist Owl, Moonlit Scavengers, Steelgaze Griffin, Outmuscle, and Mistford River Turtle in hand. So I think we are definitely outmuscling this turn. We we could play Arcanist Owl, but it doesn't really help us clock at all. We, we need to get through this Spore Cap Spider. Mm-hmm. So I think we're casting out muscle this turn, hoping to find land drops. What do you target without muscle looking at this board state? Well, so I had looked at this previously uh, in the show notes before we started recording, and I thought I had an answer like pretty clearly. But now I'm looking at your hand a little bit more and thinking about maybe I I, I was incorrect with my assumption. So here's what I thought initially. I was like, look, I think Ben put this in the show notes because it's very tempting to be like, well, I don't want to outmuscle the Vantress Gargoyle because that's sort of two for wanting myself. I already put the so tiny on there. I've invested into it. But outmuscling Snapper onto Gargoyle this turn is very tempting to me because it allows you to start pushing damage. It like eliminates your opponent's ability to race at all, right? They'll have an 04, an 04, and a 1-5, and you'll have a 5-5 in play. You don't have to worry about Vantress Gargoyle clocking you in the air. The flip side of that, I think, is you could think about, well, I'm going to outmuscle the spore cap spider i'm going to get rid of their flying blocker here to open up my future turns of arcanist owl and steel gaze griffin to come down and help me continue to win this race against this vantress gargoyle because in a turn if you draw land steel gaze griffin will be a 2-4 that can now block vantress gargoyle pretty effectively so i'm sort of going back and forth i, I think i'm going to land on final answer outmuscle vantress gargoyle take my lumps take my two for one eliminate any racing that my opponent can do right now and start to clock them with a 5-5. Right. I think that's the correct answer. I did not do that. So I was pretty tunnel visioned on how do I get these flyers through Spore Cap Spider. And so ultimately, I decided to outmuscle Thunderous Snapper onto the Spore Cap Spider for the reason you outlined, that I had Steel Gaze Griffin to block the Vantress Gargoyle next time I hit a land. And if not, I was still racing fine. I could chump with Arcanist Owl. Like I was, I was not going to die to this Vantress Gargoyle in a hurry, was mm-hmm. my thought process. And so I wanted to get rid of my opponent's blocker, but I really was not that much of an aggressor here. They have multiple chumps on my Thunderous Snapper. They have a food token and they have missed land drops. They're a little choked on mana. I think the only way I lose is to Vantress Gargoyle. And so the right thing to do is to outmuscle the Vantress Gargoyle here. And like you said, attack in with a 5-5. I did not do that. And as a result, I nearly lost this game. Uh, my opponent went untap on their turn and two and veil tree folked onto their Vantress Gargoyle. So it was now a 5-6, and I continued to brick on lands and did not hit my Moonlit Scavengers. So we nearly died to this Vantress Gargoyle because I didn't outmuscle it this turn. So if you're able to like put this in a neat little package of like a takeaway from this, like is there some lesson of what you were thinking about here that you might take to future games if you see a situation like this again? Yeah, I think I thought I was farther ahead than I was. Mm. I was assuming I had the game... I assumed Vantress Gargoyle was not a threat because I had a blocker for it in hand. But I think worst worst case scenario is Vantress Gargoyle getting bigger. That did happen. And then I nearly lost the game because of it. So I think that the takeaway here is I should be playing. My, my hand is stacked, yeah. right? My deck, I'm in no danger of getting milled out. My opponent has minimal threats. The only one that's sort of a threat is Vantress Gargoyle. Why not eliminate that threat and just ensure that I've got plenty of time to play out all these very good cards in my hand? Yeah. 
I think that's a really good point. I think that that's something that we're going to see in one of my future What's the Plays as well, but not just yet. So moving on to my next one here, we've got another blue-green deck. Shout out to blue-green, as Ben would say. Heck yeah. Uh, this deck is sweet. It's a blue-green adventures deck. It's got double Edgewall Innkeeper, double Lucky Clover, a bunch of adventures, five Queen of Ice, um, and a Feasting Troll King at the top end here. Um, looking at this board state, though, this is game three against an opponent with a greedy mana base, three islands, two mountains, three swamps. Uh, the only thing we've seen for the black splash is drown on the lock. I can only assume there's a lock serpent in there somewhere. I'm not going to describe this entire board state. We are facing down, I believe, eight creatures on my side. My opponent has seven creatures on their side with an improbable alliance in play. My Spore Cap Spider is holding off their two 1-1 flyers at the moment. And then it's just board stall city here. You know, they have a Mistford River Turtle if they wanted to push through a little bit of damage. But it's really just stalled out here. One of our Edgewalling Keepers is down for the count in our graveyard. Another one we could dig into. And your hand here is Queen of Ice and Toonville Tree Folk. And we've got this board stall here, Ben. What What's the play? Do you just run out these creatures? Yeah, I think no is my initial reaction. One, you could draw your second edge wall innkeeper and get a lot more value to get more cards to potentially break through this board state. It doesn't change what's happening here at all to play either of these creatures, which makes me not excited to play them when I know I could get more value down the road, potentially if I draw edge wall innkeeper. And then if, you know, we've got plenty of time, the board is well and thoroughly stalled. If the opponent plays some threat that we need to unveil tree folk to block, you know, no problem to cast it. We've got a high life total. We can afford to take a hit. So I think we want to try to get max value out of these creatures, which is waiting as long as possible for Edgewall Innkeeper. But the point that you brought up before we started recording was that somebody in Twitch chat had said, well, maybe it's correct to Oaken Boon onto the Spore Cap Spider to get it out of Searing Barrage range. And that makes a lot of sense to me because one of the ways you lose this game is your opponent getting in with flyers. Yes. And so taking away one of their outs at a common removal spell that is likely to be in their deck, I think is perfectly reasonable here. And that makes sense to me to Oaken Boon onto Spore Cap Spider and then try to sandbag casting the creatures here. Yes. So I did not do that. I just sandbagged both creatures and then... The point was brought up about Oaken Boon on Spore Cap Spider, which I then did the following turn, right? We're sort of all in on this Spore Cap Spider until we can find another return to nature to kill their improbable alliance, because that's our really only way to to hold off their flying forces. I think there's something interesting as well. Like, you know, our opponent is blue-red here, though they have three swamps. They're definitely base blue-red. We've seen Double Alliance, Gadwick the Wizened. Like, they seem to be a blue-red draw two deck with swamps for no reason or, or a small amount of reason. So I think, you know, if I was against a base black deck, I would be much more inclined to run these spells out because I'd be afraid of something like Reaper of Night or Memory Theft. Like certainly uh, our opponent playing Memory Theft against us in game three, bringing that in when they've seen us be such a heavy blue green adventure deck is totally reasonable, I think. So but the fact that we're not against a black deck means I think we can hold on to these cards and wait to try and get some value. Yeah, absolutely. All right, shifting back to mine, I have also got a sweet Emery deck here. Hmm. So we're mono blue Emery artifacts splashing for a Lockmere Serpent at the top end. Our deck is absolutely nuts. So we have Lockmere Serpent, Arcanist Owl, Covetous Urge as like our best threats on the top end. Have Emery as a huge engine. We've got all the artifacts. We've got Double Scalding Cauldron. We've got the Golden Egg. We've got the Witching Well. Emery is basically a gem in this deck. <laughs> and we are facing down the following board state. It's game three of the finals, no less. Yeah. So it is your opponent's turn four. We're on the draw here. We haven't taken our turn four yet. So life totals are still tied up at 20 apiece. 
Our turn one, we played Scalding Cauldron. Our turn two, we played Crashing Drawbridge. And on our turn three, we played Island Casting Emery and missed our land drop, missed our third land drop. We started this game with two lands in hand and bricked on lands. So our hand is the following cards, Animating Fairy, So Tiny, Queen of Ice, Hengewalker, and Arcanist Owl. Our graveyard has three lands in it. <laughs> Ouch. Why me? Yeah. And then a Clockwork Servant as the only target for Emery. And so we've got Scalding Cauldron on the battlefield. Can't activate it because we only have the two lands. No guarantees of drawing a land on our fourth turn. Opponent has four lands untapped, three islands of forest, four cards in hand, and they are attacking you with a Garenbrig Squire and a Mara Leaf Rider here. What's the play? I was watching you play this on stream, and I remember watching you make this play, and I typed in chat. I was like, you're going to win the game because of this play. I think it is so tempting, and you really did a great job setting it up, describing your deck, to go, look, Emery is my engine. Emery is the thing that my deck like is built around. I have it. I have Clockwork Servant in the graveyard. I have Cauldron in play. I have Crashing Drawbridge. I have all these things that like I'd be tempted to want to rebuy. The thing is, is that if you don't have time to do that, if you're just dead, it doesn't matter. And your hand is so stacked here. All you need to do is survive and draw lands that you're going to be okay. Like you'll be able to stabilize. You can animate Cauldron next turn to make it a 4-4, which blue green is going to, you know, that's going to tussle with blue green pretty well. You can, you know, tap stuff down with Queen of Ice. You can maybe then get into eventually finding your four blue sources to cast Arcanus Owl to then, you know, find another artifact or enchantment off of that. Like you just have a lot of power in your hand and the way you lose the game is by dying before you get to do any of that sweet stuff. So it can feel like, look, I'm so behind right now. I don't have, I need to hit land drops. If I lose my like value engine here, I don't have a chance, but your hand is already full of value and stuff to do. You just need to survive to do it. So I think the correct thing to do is to put drawbridge on the 2-2 Garenberg Squire and to offer the trade with Emery and Merrily Frider. Because the, the other thing about this is then you're going, look, I'm offering a trade and a block that doesn't kill my drawbridge. So you could have a trick, but you probably don't have two tricks, especially with only one green mana available. So you probably, if you have a trick here, you're probably going to just take the trade with Merrily Frider and Emery considering Emery is such a powerhouse. Like your opponent has to respect it even though you're stuck on lands. So you probably get to then keep, you know, you maybe eat a trick with the Crashing Drawbridge here and then trade Emery off for Merrily Frider, which is great because that three power from Merrily Frider, that attack is going to add up over uh, a few turns if you continue to stumble. Yeah, Merrily Frider is one of the cards that I groan the most when my opponent plays it on turn two. Yeah, it's very scary. Yeah, so I just snapped this block off here and I didn't even have to think about it that much, honestly, because uh, to me, this is a scenario of what am I choked on? I'm choked on mana. What does Emery need to be good? Mana. Mm -hmm. So Emery's, by all like practical purposes, Emery is garbage right now. Like there is, there is not a turn in the next, if I hit land drops, there is not a turn in the next four or five turns that I'm going to be activating Emery. So by by far, the best thing Emery can do for me right now is trade with a 3-1. But Twitch chat was like, whoa, what? Yeah. Like, and, and there were even people that were good players that were saying, yeah, I don't know if I'd have had like, I don't know if I'd have had the guts to do that. Yeah. Like, to me, it's like pretty face up here. But I, it is a very powerful card, but it's not not powerful in the way the game has played out missing land drops. I think I would have hopefully come to that conclusion, but it would have taken me a while. Like the fact that you were just like, cool, I can't wait to snap off this block on Marley Frider. And maybe it's just because you have PTSD about that card. But I think <laughs> that like that kind of, you know, synopsis of this is what the following 
five turns look like best case scenario. Like let's say you rip three turn three lands in a row over the following three turns, you're still not activating Emery. And so this is the best Emery's gonna do. It's gonna trade with Merrily Rider. And and I think that's a great conclusion to come to. All right, moving on to my last one here. We just had this come up last night, Ben. You and I got to draft this really beautiful near mono black deck. Lockmere Serpent as the only card we're splashing, very reminiscent of your mono blue deck we just looked at, the splash Lockmere Serpent. Uh, double Covetous Urge, Deathless Knight, Sir Conrad the Grim, Ayara, First of Lockthwain, Double Golden Egg. I mean, it's just got a lot of goodies. Maybe it's a little light on removal in just uh, Epic Downfall and Reeve Soul. But other than that, it's a pretty sweet looking deck. We are in game number two against a mono blue flyers deck here. Here's what the board state looks like. Our opponent is at 20, we're at 17. They have gone just a nice little curve out here of Witch's Oven into Corridor Monitor, into Hypnotic Sprite, into Vantress Paladin. They just cast Vantress Paladin. Of course, it's adamant because they're mono blue. On the flip side for us, we have now missed two lands. Our only card in play as a shambling suit. Last turn, we sent Falomire Knight on an adventure to try and hit our fourth land drop. And we bricked. And we bricked. And so our hand is, of course, stacked here with goodies. Sir Conrad, Covetous Urge, Lockmere Serpent, Deathless Knight, Wicked Guardian, all uncastable at the moment. We have untapped here with three mana in play, no lands to play. And our options of cards that we can play are Reeve Soul, Golden Egg, and Foulmire Knight. Ben, what's the play? Talk me off the ledge here. Yeah, so you we were on stream together and you were, I think you were frustrated that we'd miss land drops and about to lose with this sweet, sweet deck against a mono blue flyers beatdown deck. And so you and Twitch chat, I think, were lobbying for nah, you weren't lobbying hard. I think you were just frustrated and you were like, well, let's golden egg, look for a land, and if we hit, we can reeve soul. Yes. Well, my thought process was like. We're so far behind. I think I need to take the high risk, high reward line here, which is play Golden Egg, find my fourth land this turn, and cast Reeve Soul. Right, which makes sense. I mean, if if you hit that, you're in great shape. Mm -hmm. But if you miss, you lose the game most likely. Yes. Because then you can't Reeve Soul this turn, and you're taking five in the air down to 12, and you're not Reeve Souling until the following turn. And even if you hit your land drop the following turn, you're priced into Reeve Souling because you didn't Reeve Soul this turn. Right. And then, so you're still not spending your mana efficiently that next turn if you brick this turn. So you, you are probably, I would say you're like 95% to lose the game yes. if you brick on Golden Egg here. Whereas if you take the less high risk, high reward route and you just suck it up and you Reeve Soul the Vantress Palette in this turn, you're at 17. Your opponent's only clock then is a Hypnotic Sprite, mm -hmm. and which feels bad. Like you, you feel very far behind because you missed the two land drops, right? Yes. But if we Reeve Soul here and we get the Vantress Paladin down, then we're only taking two a turn. We're on like an eight or a nine turn clock as the board stands right now. And then if you brick, which is the worst case scenario for Golden Egg, if we brick on a land, we still have multiple turns to try to hit that next land without being under that much pressure unless our opponent starts playing more flyers. But I think slapping down Golden Egg here and praying is just taking a very unnecessary high risk, high reward thing because you feel bad because you've missed land drops. I think the play is to Reef Soul. Yeah. And that once you talked it out when you were like, look, here's the deal. Yes, that is going to work some amount of the time, but the times that it doesn't, you're just losing the game. Whereas here you can just say, I'm going to Reef Soul Vantress Paladin and that is going to buy me time. That like it does a similar thing that Golden Egg does in terms of like buying you time or getting you to, you know, your fourth, fifth, sixth land drops. 
But it does it with much less risk. Much less risk because you just know you get to deal with the thing and then you're like, okay, I'm only taking two a turn. If I can get to a point where I'm, you know, maybe I can hit land number four next turn and then Wicked Guardian I can play because I can deal two damage to the Shambling Suit and then maybe I'll start to draw into the, my my lands to get to go Sir Conrad into Lockmere Serpent or whatever. And you, if you brick on your land, you can also golden egg the next turn and try to find the land. Mm-hmm. And then you can crack the golden egg. So you still get sort of a mana efficient turn that turn, blanking one of your opponent's attacks. I just think a lot of good things happen for you. Yeah, I was very thankful to have you uh, in my ear last night during this game because this was we were already down a game. And I think making that play because we did, I mean, not to be results oriented, but the next card in our library was not a land. And so it really did mean that we would No, it, it was a land it was yeah we would have hit oh well then why didn't we do that why didn't we make that play <laughs> just kidding all right well so it doesn't really matter what the next card was but that play that turn was the correct thing to do and that was what i think led us to win that game all right last one here we are a blue white tempo deck we've got heavily biased towards white a little bit not heavily but 10 10 plane seven islands in the deck rare at the top of the curve stolen by the fey but ultimately, we are an aggressive beat down blue white deck, which honestly, I think are the best versions yeah. of the blue white deck. So bottom of our curve, we've got Fairy Guide Mother and Ginger Brute as threats. In the two drop slot, we've got a couple Flutter Foxes, a Youthful Knight, Silver Flame Squire, a couple Jousting Dummies, and an All That Glitters. Some Shine Chasers in the three drop slot, as well as an Ardenvale Tactician, and then an Arcanist Owl and a couple Prize Griffins. So you get the idea. We're wanting to beat down, tempo the opponent out. So we are matched up against a red-white deck in game one. Game has played out the following. It's our turn five. We've hit all our land drops. We have four lands in play, four planes in play in an island, five lands total. We've got a ginger brute and a jousting dummy on our side of the battlefield. We have traded off our fairy guide mother with our opponent's fairy guide mother. Last turn, we attacked into a youthful knight with a silver flame squire that our opponent blocked. And so we were able to cast the on alert version of silver flame squire onto our jousting dummy to kill our opponent's youthful knight nice so we've got a ginger brute and a jousting dummy they've got their own silver flame squire and they just cast a fireborn knight on their turn four so we're now staring down a fireborn knight we're at 14 they're at 16 and we have a lot of options in hand so with this five mana we have a prized griffin in hand we have an all that glitters and we have an arden veil tactician as well as our silver flame squire chilling in exile, ready to be cast. So there's a lot of different ways to use your mana effectively here. Throne of Eldraine is just the best. It really is. So I'm going to lay out the options for you here. You can cast Prize Griffin, and I think planning to presumably block Fireborn Knight here. You could Silver Flame Squire, all that glitters onto your Ginger Brute, and make the Ginger Brute unblockable. And so by casting all that glitters, your Ginger Brute will be a 4-4 here because you've got the two artifacts in play and then all the glitters counts itself as an enchantment. So it'll give plus three, plus three. You built your own Oaken form. And then Ardenvale Tactician, you could all that glitters onto your Ginger Brute and Dizzying Swoop down their creatures on their turn to prevent them from attacking you back. Or you could just cast Silver Flame Squire, cast the actual Ardenvale Tactician. You could all the glitters plus cast the Ardenvale Tactician. There are a lot of different combinations to use all of your mana here. And I was just a little bit overwhelmed as to how to pick the best one. So I'm curious to see what you would land on here. So I think when you have this many options, I think it's important to maybe think about them in terms of the two poles. Like what's the most defensive option and what's the most aggressive option? So the most defensive option, I think, is to play Prized Griffin because that, as a 3-4 blocker, can offer to 
one, it blanks Silver Flame Squire from your opponent attacking, and it also offers to one, trade with Fireborn Knight, or at least get in front of Fireborn Knight and then eat your opponent's whole turn if they want to pump mana into it. I don't particularly love that. Like it's a the most defensive play, but it doesn't really accomplish a whole lot in my opinion. It doesn't enable any attacks for you this turn and it sort of decides that you're no longer the beatdown. The other option, which I think is the most aggressive, is to cast all the glitters on Ginger Brute, which would give it plus three, plus three, because you have two artifacts plus the enchantment. You'll have one mana remaining to make it unblockable, so you can get in for four, bring your opponent down to 12. And then on your opponent's turn, you can cast Dizzying Swoop to tap down their two creatures. And then this enables more snowball-y stuff from you from the following turn because you can then put down, you know, if you hit land number six, then you can make Ginger Brute unblockable again play Silver Flame Squire, and play Ardenvale Tactician. So this then puts like some, you know, derpy ground creatures in front of your opponent's double striker for a number of turns, continues to add to the clock of unblockable stuff, right? If you do hit that six land, your opponent's now on a two-turn clock. It, not quite, uh, but they're, they're close to it because Ginger Brute's still attacking for four, and then now you're getting two more from Tactician in the air. So I think looking at those two as the most aggressive or most defensive plays, I much prefer the most aggressive line here. And I think anything in between is sort of a half measure, and I don't much like that. Right. And so that was what I ultimately ended up doing. I ultimately, but I hemmed and hawed for a good like three, four minutes on stream, as I am known to do. <laughs> And so I did end up slamming all that glitters onto the ginger brute and going for the dizzying swoop tap down their two creatures line. And so the thing, I think that's the correct line. And I, I felt like this large reticence to do that because if your opponent just goes land searing barrage or trapped in a tower, you probably lose the game on the spot, right? Yes. But I built my deck. Ultimately, the, the reason I ended up coming to that decision was I built this blue-white tempo aggro deck. Like the plan is to all the glitters onto Ginger Brew, right? But I was still scared to do that. There's such an aversion to two for ones, at least that I feel, I think, and just auras in general. But I think ultimately you're out of Scorching Dragonfire range, which is good. I think if you were in Scorching Dragonfire range still, I wouldn't make this play. But the fact that you're pushing for this turn, for the next turn, and you, you, you're both playing aggressive decks, and when you're both playing aggressive decks, and you manage to be the person that's the beatdown, I think that's always a thing that's in your favor. And I think you just sort of have to realize that you're probably just dead to Searing Barrage anyway. Like, if you, whatever line you take, I don't know how that card doesn't just wreck you. Like, you play Prize Griffin and pass, and then they go, cool, Searing Barrage, and now you're just like, awesome, I have no good blocks, this Fireborn Knight is crushing my soul like i just think you have to then sort of be like well if they have it they have it and that's not good for me yeah i just thought it was interesting how despite building this deck where i wanted to put all the glitters on ginger brute had that line available to me and had the dizzying sweep to tap down their two creatures i still felt bad yeah <laughs> about like doing that which is just weird uh just such an ingrained mentality to not get two for one in magic but i think I think ultimately that's the right play here. So we just went through nine whole decisions here. I think there's a lot of like overlapping takeaways from all of these that I want to just throw out here to summarize as we finish up the show. Um, it seems like one, the, the biggest thing that I'm noticing is how important it is to have a plan at the start of your turn and then follow through with that plan. You know, I, I think it's very easy to like start your turn and go, well, I'll go to attacks first or well, I think I'm going to do this, but then halfway through doing it, you realize something else happened, like maybe thinking about my play with the Surferon and the Rimrock Knight, or thinking about your opponent who cast their Wildborn Preserver 
mid combat and then went, uh oh, maybe maybe he has so tiny and I shouldn't block. So no half measures here. I think like, you know, if you're gonna make a plan at the start of the turn, follow through with that plan. But then it's really important to think about that plan thoroughly before executing it. That's the that's the step I miss out on. <laughs> we're looking at mana efficiency a lot in these turns. I think that's something that you and I think about all the time. And you know, that that is really the thing you should be doing more often than not. But then when the exception to that rule comes up, why it's so powerful or so correct to do so. And even if you're just like, well, I should probably play this four drop instead of this five drop because of X, Y, Z. I think mapping out future turns, like how does what I'm doing right now impact not just like my opponent's next turn, but how does that impact my second turn after, third turn after, fourth turn after? I think that's something you're really good at doing, especially with considering who's the beatdown or who's not. And I think this last one that we looked at is a perfect example of that, of like, how does the rest of this game flow and how do I close this out? Or how do I then decide to pump the brakes and become the the defender in this matchup. I think those are important things to think about as well. Absolutely. And with those two scry decisions, planning out how to maximize your next turns with the with the way you know the game is likely to play out based on the cards in your hand. And I think the, a lot of the other things we saw were when you're behind or when you've had some bad beats, like taking the time to think through and still make the best play. Like there were a couple of those as well, right? Yeah. The mulligan decision that I had, the keeper mull. And then a couple of those where we'd missed land drops and how do you fight through optimally missing land drops. And that's, I think when I play magic, the best is when I have a really good deck and I miss land drops. Like <laughs> I want to win so bad. And I think that's when I go on high alert and I really start thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're really good at those decisions of like, what am I choked on here and how do I maximize what I have or how do I play optimally or, you know, in the sort of like best case scenario way to say, all right, well, if I'm going to draw three lands, what do I wish I do now to set that up for future turns? Right. Yeah, very cool. Those were fun board states to take a look at. Yeah, hopefully that was helpful for you all and you were able to follow along at home. And again, those imager links will be available to you where you download the show. All right, great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Come check us out on Twitch and Twitter. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. spelled out. We're under those same usernames on Twitter. And you can also tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for hanging out and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Three forty-seven to one sixty-two, fifty-three trophies, and cruising at that sixty-eight percent win weight. Win, win weight. weight. Win weight. <laughs> Wascally win weight.